Hey there, welcome to Murder Dictionary Podcast. I'm Brianna, and that is Courtney. Hello. So before we get into the case that we're talking about tonight, we just want to remind you of a few things. We've got links in the show notes to our Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter if you want to follow us. We have a lot of fun over there, but it makes me sound like a really not cool aunt when I say things are fun, right? Yeah. Yeah, I I try not to say that, but it's funny. We've got memes, we've got information, we've got breaking news, but I don't want to be the fun aunt and be like, oh, look at those fun shoes you've got on. You know? It's a super good time. <laughs> so um, if you want to follow us over there, check out those links in the show notes. We also have links to our resources that we use to research each case every week. So if you want to do more reading and find out more information, do a deeper dive, then feel free to check out those links. We also put links to our Patreon and our Threadless. So on Threadless, we've got merch items uh, like t-shirts and sweatshirts, tote bags, stuff like that. If you want to grab some of those for the holiday season or your favorite Murder Dictionary fan that you need a gift for. And we've got links to our Patreon. So if you want to join our Patreon, you get access to bonus episodes, uh, early release episodes, ad-free episodes. So head over to our Patreon and click on that link in the show notes if you want to join. We've got a few people that just joined this week that we want to say thank you to. So thank you to Julia, Igali, Hunter, and Rebecca. Thank you. Every time I see Rebecca, I, I hear it in the 90 Day Fiance voice. Rebecca. You know the guy I'm talking about? So much work. <laughs> I do so much work. So much love. You're Rebecca. so much beautiful. <laughs> so much. So much beautiful. So thank you to you guys. Thank you to Rebecca and Julia, Igali, and Hunter. Thank you for that. That was a gift. <laughs> so what else have we got? You got anything, Court? It was Thanksgiving. It was good. Yours was great. Yours right? was good. Mine was mine was good. Yours was great. Um, we hope you guys had a great Thanksgiving. I'm sure they did. Yeah. It's just about food. It's not about celebrating the actual what it, happened for. Yeah. It's about beating traffic. <laughs> That's what Thanksgiving's about. Getting up at like five. It's about Black Friday sales. Yeah, that's about, oh, yeah, cooking, green bean casserole, oh, yeah. you know. So we hope that you guys enjoyed that. And I did find out, I think I said it last time, I'm just really excited. The Bath and Body Works candle sale is December 7th. <laughs> Everyone listening. They are usually $24.95. They are only $8.95 at the candle sale. And it starts online the night before. It's literally Courtney's favorite day of the year. It is. It's my Super Bowl. <laughs> it really is. Yeah, it is. I study all year. I got my team. Plan out what you're going to get. Yeah, my sister-in-law goes the day before and finds out in the store where the things are. You're nuts. Sometimes man. she plants me in line before the mall opens. <laughs> but not this year. It's so sad. Oh, dear. So anyway. Is that it? Your last announcement yeah, is about the candles? That was it. That's what I'm thinking about right now. That's it. That's all I got. So with all that said, now that you guys are updated on candles and everything, yeah. we can jump into the case that we have. We are still on letter L and we're doing the subject of letters, killers that write letters, notes, ransom letters, all that stuff. It's been pretty fascinating so far. And this one uh, is definitely 
intense. It's really, there's a lot to this one. So um, one of the things that's going on behind the scenes is that Courtney hasn't really seen this full script. Yeah, not So at all. this is a very pure reaction from you about all the crazy events that are about to happen in this case. I missed out on this one. I completely, no clue. So I'm this very is great. surprised that it, there's not more coverage of this case. So I'm really excited to take a dive into it and get, you know, a little bit more coverage and awareness out there because it's really intense. Um, and then I, <laughs> I kind of am enjoying the fact that you don't know a lot about the case because it's going to be such a like I always appreciate your perspective when we're going into it I know that you're going to have a kind of take that I didn't see like you always see these things that I wasn't aware of so I'm excited for that I was talking with um, my friend Stacy who does the Unsung Sluts podcast. Okay. They do, you know, the history of a lot of women that weren't really covered in the basic history books, in your basic history classes, right? So there's a great ton of stories about women that I highly encourage you to listen to that show. And I was talking to Stacy, and she was like, I love doing a story that my co-host has never heard of before because it's such a genuine reaction where her co-host Tabitha just is blown away like, oh, I didn't know this and I didn't know that. And so I'm excited that we get to have that experience this week. I'm really looking forward to it. <laughs> I love hearing, you know, something I've never heard before. Yeah, this is one new. that's just like, you know, nobody's really, I haven't seen anybody talk about. So we're going to get Court's first reaction I'm pretty stoked. Hot take. <laughs> That's another thing I'm always hesitant to say. It's like fun. You I know. know. When someone well, thinks they have a hot take, it's never a hot take. I know. It's like, <laughs> oh, I can never remember to say case. Mm, yes. It's not a story. I always just cut that out. Thank you. Thank <laughs> you for doing that. So this week, I don't know if you guys have all heard about it, but it's the story of Sutomu Miyazaki. Satomu Miyazaki was a preemie who was born near Tokyo on August 21st, 1962. And he was actually born with this really rare birth defect that had basically pretty much fused his wrists together, which made him unable to bend them. And it gave him very little mobility in his hands. The one thing that Courtney does know is that she's seen pictures of this. I'm just standing. I'm just holding my wrists. Yeah. I, I'm just messing with my hands. It is very uncomfortable looking. Maybe on the episode post, I'll put a picture of his hands because it, it really is something that it's not a slight difference. It's a very jarring. It looks, you know, not to be insensitive, but he looks like it's someone pretending to be Dracula in the 20s. Okay. You know what I mean? Isn't there a cartoon? Is it called Salad Fingers? I don't know. Never mind. I'm sorry. It's okay. But it you know what it kind of looks like is um the the drawing you always see of Slenderman his right. hands just prone at his sides. There's something very naturally scary about the way that his hands are formed. And it, it's just sad to say that except for if it was anyone else I wouldn't really be a jerk about it, but this guy murdered people. So, hey, fuck it. He's got monster hands basically. Monster hands. Yeah. So the Miyazaki family was a powerful family in their Tokyo neighborhood 
because Satomu's father owned a local newspaper. And Satomu felt like his family really only cared about money and material possessions. They really didn't give a fuck about family or being loving to their children. They weren't warm and fuzzy people. I'll put it that way. He believed that his parents always were ignoring him and they never really heard him. So he really didn't talk to them about anything important because he, quite frankly, didn't feel safe talking to them. That's sad. Uh, Yeah, it is. It seems like there's a lot of issues that stemmed from his parents. He also did not get along with his sisters because they were very obvious about their disgust for his hands and they picked on him. And it sounds like his parents didn't put a stop to it. Yeah, it doesn't. It just was an open thing that happened within his family and and his parents were okay with it. That's sad. It really is. Yeah. It's no matter what. I mean, that's a fucked up thing to let a child go through. Yeah. Around age five, he began exhibiting this very strange behavior of closing his eyes in all of the family photos. And I really couldn't find a psychological explanation for this, but every picture you see of him as a child, he's just got his eyes closed. And everybody else is, you know, again, they're a wealthy family taking a lot of pictures, being very presenting this united front of wholesomeness. And then there's this one kid with his eyes shut. I mean, making stupid faces in pictures as a kid. That's one thing. And especially like if it's changing all the time, but just to close your eyes, it's like he was playing dead in the photos, honestly. Really? It's weird. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) I just figured this is just a kid closing his eyes in pictures. But But I mean, if it's every time. Everyone, you know, it's not like, oh, we're taking a serious photo and then now I'm sticking my tongue out for this fun photo. Sure. No, it's every single time. Interesting. Yeah. Things at school weren't much better than they were at home since he seemed to have trouble making friends and he spent all of his time alone. His teachers and classmates remember him as meek and quiet. And of course, he was also bullied relentlessly, and often he would hide his hands in photographs out of embarrassment. I'm sure kids were terrible. I can't imagine. I mean, his sisters are mean to him. And I know I feel slightly bad for describing his hands in the beginning, but it's just like, (laughs) you know, I mean, you imagine this kid on the playground just trying to make friends. He's always alone and nobody wants to talk to him because of his hands. It's really fucked up. And even at home, there's just no escape from the bullying. Yeah. Because he was alone all the time, he chose very solitary hobbies like drawing, photography, and reading comic books. He would later admit to killing animals, saying, quote, I've killed cats. I threw one in the river, did another one with boiling water. Don't like that. No. So there's there's always this thing, like, I feel bad. I don't want to talk don't shit about this bad. kid. But then the other part of me is like, he's evil. He was born evil. He's killing cats at God knows what age. So 
don't I don't feel that bad. And we don't know what age, but he's just like, yeah, there's been two. Right. Like, it's not like I just one time I did this and I felt terrible after and I'll never do it again. I just wanted to see what it was like. No, it was nope. definitely a deliberate wanting to see something vulnerable suffer. And I think that's very telling. He's so young and he's preying on something smaller and vulnerable. And as he gets older, he chooses victims that are smaller and vulnerable. So I think this is the beginning of a pattern for him. It also may be just related even just to his hands. It's what he can catch. Maybe. Strength wise. Yes. He also was known to have strangled his own dog to death with a strand of wire. His only friend? I mean, seriously, I can't imagine. That's probably the only thing that, in the house that's really kind to you. That is your only friend. And that's what shows to me he's just, he's a monster. I mean, he's a really evil deep down person. I can't remember a case recently that we've done that has made me this disturbed of someone that's just deep down an evil monster. Wow. You know? So, but stuff like this where you see from the beginning he's killing animals, multiple animals. I mean, it's not going to get better. It's only going to get worse. Yeah. Yeah. Because he didn't have a social life, he devoted all of his time to classwork and studying. He did really well in elementary school and also in junior high. And he was even ranked in the top 10 in his entire class. I see this so much. He was doing really well. Really smart. Yeah. yeah. But at the time, he hoped to become an English teacher. Those were his goals. We got goals. This is huge. Right. This is a good thing. This is big. He became the first student from his junior high school to pass the entrance exam to the prestigious Maide Nakano High School. He commuted two hours each way every day to attend school, but eventually he actually stopped focusing on his classwork and stopped dedicating himself to school. That is a schlep. So you're commuting four hours every day and then... You all of a sudden stopped trying when you were top 10 in your class? That, I, Just go to a closer school. Well, <laughs> like, if you're sure. going to not work that hard, I mean, there's okay. that. And I mean, yeah, okay, so this one's super prestigious, but it's like, you know, okay, we can go to an, another school. There's other options. There are other options here. But that's just like a really fast way to burn out. Yeah, to be on the road that much, and it just doesn't seem like it's sustainable. Even if he was giving it his all, it would be very difficult if he was giving 100%. Yeah. Instead of focusing on classwork, he started reading comic books, drawing, and watching anime or horror movies. And once he was devoting more time to these hobbies, his grades suddenly tanked. And he ended up being the 40th person out of 56 in his class. That's a huge drop. Huge. From 10th to 40th? Right. And there's no like... There was no major event or anything we don't... That we know of. Well, yeah, that we know of. But it seems like there's a lot of information about him... And it seems like we would have known. Yeah. Of all the, the, you know, vast information that's out there about him and his childhood, it just seems very weird 
that something would have happened around this time and nobody would know about it. Yeah. At the same time that his grades were plummeting, his social life had not improved either. And he was always in a corner by himself drawing or reading a comic book. He had no relationships with women in high school. And really, he had no idea how to have, you know, quote, normal romantic interactions with girls his age. It became incredibly clear that he was not capable of just acting natural, you know? Well, girls are mean. Well, yeah. As far I mean, as he knows, right? That's probably true. It yeah. was a fear because of, you know, his hands and how much he had been picked on. They either don't pay attention to you or they're mean. Yeah, that makes sense. Although there's actually not any record of specific misbehavior, classmates recalled that Satomu was, quote, creepy with girls and they would gossip about him. And one of the rumors going around was that he had a micro penis. But we don't really know where this came from. And again, it's something worth pointing out that people were saying things, but also there's nothing substantial there that we know conclusively. But he was definitely the source of a lot of, you know, chatter. He was an easy target. That's the thing. You know? It makes sense that they would just sort of make things up about him. Same. And he wasn't doing himself any favors by no. just being alone and kind of being a little bit strange with girls. Being weird. You know? Like, yeah, got it. <laughs> because he had bad grades, he was unable to get into a good college and follow that previous plan he had of becoming a teacher. Before this, his family had expected that Sutomu would take over running the family's newspaper after his father retired. But this plan went out the window when his grades went to shit. Wonder if that was on purpose. They yeah. came to him and they were like, hey, you're 10th in your class. You're doing great. You're going to be just in line to run the paper. And then it's like, I don't want to run the fucking paper. Fail. Yeah. Now nobody expects shit from me. It might be. I don't know. He was and maybe it was like two hours each way and then all of a sudden, right? Hmm. He was so resentful of them. It might yes. make sense that it was just a way to get back. Like, well, now what are you going to do? I'm not going to run the business. So you guys figure it out. Who knows? But yeah, there's a good argument for that. Have one of my bitch sisters do it. Right? <laughs> right? <laughs> Fuck them. So instead of his previous plans, he ended up taking classes at the local junior college so that he could study to become a photo technician. I feel like that's almost something that needs to be explained for young people. Back in the day when we used to develop all our photos. In dark rooms. There were people actually developing them. Like I remember, I feel like the photo technician people were always strange. Does that ring true for you i feel like every time i developed a disposable camera it was like oh yeah i hope there's nothing crazy on there because that guy's keeping a copy definitely right definitely and you know it is kind of funny because you keep saying 
my brain is just evil. And so immediately, as soon as you're like, he's drawing, I'm like, how, like, what is he doing with his hands when he's drawing? And you're like, oh, he's a photographer. I'm like, how is he pushing these buttons? Like, I immediately go to these like very physical images of like, how is he doing this? No, that's something I thought of too, because as you know, as the story goes on, I mean, he's really out there taking a lot of photographs. Like we've talked about, he's done a lot of drawing. So he's found something that works for him you know, and probably found some sort of modifications that he could use as far as different writing utensils, maybe different styles of buttons on cameras. But it was not easy for him to operate these things. It was definitely something that I think took him a ton of time and practice to really get good at. So while he was in college studying to be a photo technician, he would also hang around the tennis courts and take upskirt photos and crotch shots of the female players. Yeah. Yeah. It was well known people. And this is again, like this is where I think a lot of rumors and gossip are happening is like, he's doing these slightly off things where it's like, most of the time you'd see someone just watching a tennis game and they're just watching a tennis game. But for him, people could tell that he was doing something creepy I think that was happening in high school, and that's why there were rumors about him. Some of them maybe came out of nowhere because it was bullying, but part of it was he really wasn't doing himself any favors with his behavior. Yeah. He also consumed pornographic magazines obsessively, but he got bored of them, and he said, quote, they black out the most important part. He's doing it wrong. (laughs) Like reading a whole pornographic magazine. (laughs) But well, I mean, it's important to say the laws within his country, you can't show pubic hair. So like he's seeing the kind of porn where there's literally a black bar over the vagina. Oh, well, then, yeah, I guess they are blocking out the best part. Yeah. Ew. But this, I think, fuels his obsession with these kind of crotch shots and being at the tennis games and getting the upskirt photos because there's something there that he can't see, right? Yeah. You know, he just wants to get closer or whatnot or get more pictures or whatever. This is, oh, wait, no. This is a way he can look at porn and like see the crotch shots. So yeah, it's basically he's just making his own porn. Like this is what I want to see. So I'm just going to find it and take pictures of it, cut out the middleman. Right. And he likes photography and he's got a dark room. So it's this incorporating his hobby. Totally. Getting to see what's under the black box on his porns. He's incorporating a lot of things here. In his early 20s, he turned his attention to child pornography, which was not censored by Japan's obscenity laws that banned the showing of pubic hair, but not the depiction of sexual organs. This is so backwards. And it's worth pointing out, obviously, there's an entire country of people here that are seeing porn with the black boxes over genitals who are not jumping to child porn. That is not a normal thing. But in this particular case with Sutomu, that's what he decided to do, was to do the upskirt photos and look for children because... They weren't operating within the normal legal boundaries, so they showed everything. So, again, that's highly, you know, the the out-of-the-ordinary anomaly for that to happen. 
but that's the route that his brain took. He graduated in 1983. Then his father helped him get a job at a printing plant owned by a family friend. He lived at home in a guest house that he shared with his older sister. That must have been a lovely home. I mean, they never got along. No. He was never big on family at all, but I mean, especially his sister. Yeah. His mother, Raiko, tried to replace affection and love with money and gifts. So she gave her son expensive things like his Nissan Langley sedan, which apparently he was very attached to. But Satomu felt very unloved, and he said, quote, If I tried to talk to my parents about my problem, they would just brush me off. I even thought about suicide. Hmm. So he really, I mean, there was a severe disconnection from his family. Yeah, he's a aware. A severe lack of love, too. Yeah. The only person in his family that he did get along with, and let's let's expand it, the only person at all, I think, that he got along with and felt close to was his grandfather. Yeah. And he'd credited his grandfather with helping him get through his suicidal thoughts because he didn't have any other family members he was close to and no friends. So his grandfather really, really helped him out. He felt like his grandpa was the only person who cared about him. So he was the only family member that he actually spent time with. In 1988, Satomu's grandfather passed away. And at that point, he felt like he was completely alone. After his grandfather was cremated, Sutomu ate some of the ashes, claiming that he wanted to feel close to him and have his grandpa live on through him. We got a problem. We Again, got- I mean, there's so many things about this guy that it's, it's clearly not right. You know, he's just really fucked up. His thought processes are just so abnormal. It's not reality. No. He began at this point after his grandfather passed, really having a lot of outbursts and violence and just, you know, his behavior started becoming notable to those around him. The first thing that happened is he began spying on his sisters while they were showering. They already didn't like him. Yeah. Come on. There's already tension there, but then it escalated. And it's very pinpointed. We know from studying these cases that there's often a triggering event. And his grandfather passing was that event. And that's when he started kind of targeting women. And so he stayed within his house at first and was kind of going after his sisters. One day when his sister caught him doing it, she started screaming and yelling at him to leave. Instead of listening to her, he physically attacked her and then smashed her head against the wall. Later on, when his mother found out about it and confronted him, she suggested that he spend less time isolating with his comic books and movies. And when she did this, Satomu freaked out 
and then attacked her too. It's wild. He was really lashing out at everybody. Yeah. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders. From ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities, CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. In August 1988, just three months after his grandfather's death, Sutomu turned 26 years old, and the very next day, he committed his very first murder. 26? Yeah. So young. He would later say, quote, I felt all alone, and whenever I saw a little girl playing on her own, it was almost like seeing myself. But to me, it's just doesn't make sense that he would take those little girls and hurt them. If he is seeing himself in them, he gives a ton of excuses that kind of seem backwards to me. This is one of them where it's just like, well, if you see yourself in that person, like I see myself in someone younger, I want to like take them under my wing like a little sister. But he sees that as someone to victimize. So there's a lot that doesn't add up with his claimed thought processes there's stay with me there's a theory that patsy ramsey walked in on what the father molesting jean benet she patsy had been molested supposedly this all speculation as a child when she walked in and saw him doing this to her daughter she freaked out she went back she saw herself as a child and she killed jean benet she was killing herself the child that was abused Hmm. So he sees himself all by himself, all alone. It's so sad. This little girl is probably just playing by herself because she's doing that. Yeah. But he's misinterpreting it. This is just me playing here. Saying, you know, oh, I see myself as a little kid. I need to kill it. <laughs> like, it makes no sense. It never will. But, but just, that's kind of the only way it would make sense. It, because otherwise yes. it really doesn't. Makes no Unless sense. he's thinking in his own, like he mentioned that he was suicidal, if he felt like he wished that he wasn't alive and he felt like it was a kindness to kind of take these little girls' lives because in his mind they were alone and suffering like he was, yes. that's the only way that it makes sense. 
But literally, there's no other way that it makes sense at all. None. And I, I pointed this out because it seems like time and time again for Satomu, he brings things up that don't explain his behavior at all. But he thinks that what he's saying makes perfect sense. Like, oh, I killed them because they were all alone. Well, that doesn't make sense at all. He doesn't really know how to communicate like no. with people no. is what it sounds like. He's very isolated. And so he just thinks what I say, that's what they'll they'll believe. They'll just take what I say and believe it. And that's not how this works. No. But time and time again, you'll see that he says things that do not explain his behavior. And he's very clearly saying like, well, this is why I did it. And none of it makes sense. So it's worth pointing out what he says he was thinking. But to me, I don't know if he's making things up after the fact or if he genuinely believes that that's a reason. Yeah. Sutomu spotted four-year-old Mari Kono as she was walking alone along a road heading to a friend's house. He approached her and then led her back to his Nissan and convinced her to get in. And then they drove off. He drove her over an hour away to a wooded area west of Tokyo and then parked the car under a bridge where it couldn't be seen by people who were passing by. This is one of the things that we've talked about before, the the terror that this poor girl must have been feeling sitting in this car for an hour, not knowing what was going to happen. It just breaks my heart. Once they were at this spot, for a half an hour, they sat in the car together while Satomu tried to convince Mari to let him take pictures of her. And she eventually complied, and he took a series of photos. When he was done, he leaned closer and strangled Mari to death. Afterwards, he removed all of her clothes and raped her corpse. Satomu left Mari's naked body in the woods and then took her clothes home with him. That's a new one. Hmm. At 6.23 p.m., Mari's architect father, Shigeo Kono, began to panic because his daughter hadn't returned home from her friend's house. So he called the police to report her missing. Four is really young, by the way, to be just like walking from neighbor to neighbor. And I know that like John D. Miller, we had six-year-old April walking from the house. to house. I feel like there's a big difference from four to six. Yes. I mean, they're both little. Yeah. But first grade versus like preschool, I just, I don't know. That's young. It is. And it, Yeah. So, yeah, you panic when the four-year-old doesn't show up, right? I mean, That's Jesus. the thing is I, I feel like it must have just been like two doors down or it something like be, that. Right? Because I think that she was so close that he wasn't worried. And then once it turned dinner time, it was like, oh, wait, something's wrong. Yeah. You know? And everybody reacted really quickly to it. Police squad cars began rolling through the streets looking for Mari and using their loudspeakers to warn parents to keep an eye out for their children. I mean, the reaction was immediate. They really took this very seriously right away. Although it was officially called a missing persons case, reportedly 
the police treated it as a murder investigation from the very beginning. Officers spent thousands of man hours canvassing the area, and there were over 50,000 posters with Mari's picture distributed. That's a lot. It's a ton. They put so much into this investigation. But after all that, there were no leads, and police dogs were unable to follow Mari's scent to find her. Part of it must have been that they got into a car right there, that he just... Got her straight from the street, put her in the car. There was no scent to follow, I think, for the dogs. Yeah. Especially once he took her an hour away, you know. Mm -hmm. Two boys and one woman came forward saying that they'd seen Mari walking with an adult male. The witnesses misidentified his age by saying that he was in his late 30s. But they correctly described him as about 5'6", with a round, chubby face and curly hair, wearing white pants and a white sweater. It's a pretty good description. Yeah, it seemed like they had a lot of details. And there must have been something striking about seeing the two of them together, you know? I'm glad that people remembered so that they could identify him later. For several weeks... Satomu left Mari's body decomposing in the woods, but he was really preoccupied with thinking about her, so he began going back to check on her corpse periodically. After going back several times, he hacked off her hands and feet, then took them home to keep in his closet. This gets curiouser and curiouser, like, this is this is another level of we're not in reality. And like we see, you know, killers make no methodical sense often. But like this is someone who's just not even trying. This is next level. Yeah. yeah. He's not with us. Not at all. No. Over the next several weeks and months... Satomu would call Mari's parents and breathe heavily into the phone. Fuck this guy. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. He is just evil to the core. Yeah. The worst of the worst. Once her parents would become completely fed up with the calls and they'd just start not answering the phone. But when they tried doing this, he would just call over and over and over again and just let it ring until finally someone freaked out and picked up the phone. It was just torture. Eventually, he went back and further dismembered the body, then proceeded to burn pieces into ashes. A couple months later, in October of 1988, Sutomu spotted seven-year-old Masami Yoshizawa walking down the street on her way home. He offered her a ride, so she got into the car, but once she was inside, he proceeded to drive past her house. Again, I don't know why over and over it's striking to me where it's like once you know that crucial moment that you're passing the house, the kind of terror that sets in this poor little girl. Satomu drove Masami to the same wooded area that he took Mari to. He strangled her then removed her clothes and raped her corpse, just like he'd done in the previous murder. 
He left her clothes in the car to take home while he carried her body to the woods to dump it. He's always taking these clothes with him. Yes. It's very much there's something there with the clothes that he has to keep them as a little memento. So as he was walking through the woods to carry Masami's corpse, her body suddenly shuddered involuntarily, which startled him. So he dropped her and ran terrified back to his car and sped away. Masami's body was only a hundred meters away from where he had left Mari's remains. Later that night, Masami's parents reported her missing, so police and volunteer search parties combed the area to look for any trace of her. And again, police spent thousands of hours investigating and distributing information about the girl's disappearance. Both girls were officially considered missing, but detectives again were investigating it as though they had been murdered. He would, just, I mean, I'm sure, you know, this is one of those people that just, this is a spot that works. This is my new graveyard. It's just. Yeah. I mean, I don't think it's incredibly uncommon, but it is so close. They're yeah. right next to each other. Yeah. It's just, I think there's something there with those spots that killers feel comfortable with. They feel comfortable going back. They know it's remote enough to where they can visit the bodies. This is a, you know, it's a Ted Bundy thing. There's there's other killers that have done this. Yeah. So it's definitely, I think, knowing in your head that you're going to go back and look at the bodies. You need to find some place that you are confident isn't going to be swarmed with people. That's not going to have hikers and whatnot especially since it seems like he wasn't burying them. He was just dumping the bodies. So anybody could find them. It had to be somewhere remote, you know. Two months later, on December 12th, 1988, Satomu spotted four-year-old Erica Namba as she was walking home from a friend's house. Again, four. Yeah, and, and there's part of me, it's like maybe I don't know the proximity or maybe... Culturally, it's just easy for them to walk. So there's something there that I think this is kind of normal. Like mm-hmm. something in this tells me yeah. that it's a normal thing for a four-year-old to walk Late to a friend's 80s. house. I don't know. It's yeah. also, you know, a time period thing. Yeah. At first, Satomu tried his previous tactic of convincing the girl to get in his car. But Erica refused him repeatedly. He became frustrated by this and he lost his patience. So he just picked her up and forced her into his car. She was crying as he drove her to a parking garage and parked the car. He instructed Erica to undress in the back seat. Then he started to take photos of her. Afterwards, he strangled her to death tied her hands and feet together, then wrapped her body in a sheet and put it in his trunk. He dumped her clothes in the woods near the parking garage and then drove off. And this is a slight change where previously he was taking the clothes. There's something about separating the clothes from the body and leaving the body naked. Yeah. And again, we've seen this as a humiliation thing, as, you know, I think that there's something to leave a body exposed like that, you know, but 
previously they had been taken as mementos. So there's a little bit of a switch here. As he was driving off, Satomu was actually not paying attention to the road. So one of his wheels went off the side of the road as he was leaving and his car got stuck. Like this is the thing that's going to hang you up? Right. You weren't looking where you were driving? But that's the thing about this killer. He is not organized. He's not premeditated and not planned. He is just taking people when he sees them. It's just opportunity. There's nothing behind it. You know what I mean? So this leaves him so open and vulnerable to mistakes, to getting caught, to being seen by witnesses. These kind of things happen when you aren't organized, you know? I mean, things can go wrong all the time, but it's highly likely that something's going to go wrong if you're in a tizzy and frantic because you haven't planned things out, you know? And that's clearly what happened here is like he's kind of riding the high of what he had just done and still like got all this anxious energy and he just wasn't paying attention. He did something stupid. Yeah. And he's just not in reality either. Exactly. So it's just... He, I don't think he even seems to like realize in a way that people could catch him. No. You know? He's got no regard. I mean, he's going off the path and trying to hide when he's actually committing the murders. Like he's going to places that are, that don't have people around and trying to hide his car and stuff. But he really doesn't have any perception of people being out there and seeing. Not at all. Before his car got stuck, he was actually planning to take the body with him home. But now at this point, once his car was stuck, he couldn't risk having someone find Erica in his trunk when they tried to help him with his car. So he just put his hazards on and carried the sheet-wrapped body into the woods. He returned a short while later with the empty sheet in his hands to find two good Samaritans working on his car. What world does that happen? Right? Jesus. I guess Japan. I Apparently guess. I need to move. No kidding. This America thing is for the birds. What? Nobody's trying to help us. Sweet neighbors. I think it's just LA though. Maybe. <laughs> so yeah, it's kind of surprising. But also, of course it would happen. It's kind of a weird true crime Murphy's Law thing. Like in any other time, if you just need help, there'd be nobody around to find you. But when there's this murderer trying to hide a body, of course, there's two people that come out of the woodworks, you know? Good Samaritans aplenty. (laughs) Right? So as he walked up and he saw them, of course, he panics. And instead of thanking them for helping him get his car unstuck, he awkwardly just opened his trunk, threw the sheet in, walked around to the driver's side, got in, and sped off without saying anything to them. What an asshole. Yeah, they were, I mean, both of them were just like, "Uh, this guy didn't say a word to me. And you better believe that when the police come talking to me, did you see anything strange? I'm going to remember this asshole. Exactly. For sure. Well, actually, yes, I do remember this weirdo that came out of the woods with a sheet, said nothing, and didn't even thank me. 
And that's a prime example of Sutomu just not being aware of how to deal with people. He has no self-awareness either. He could have acted natural, quote unquote. Right. He could have just played Thank it off so and been much. like, oh my God, I was trying to like, oh, I needed to go like that's Adnan case. I needed to go take a leak. So I went over there and now I'm just coming back. Thanks for helping me. Like you could do something, come up with an excuse. I don't know. I needed to go take a nap. I, who cares? But when you come back, don't just say nothing. That's crazy. Like you're already salad finger monster hands guy. <laughs> like you just try and fit just, in. Just make an attempt. <laughs> After this murder, police immediately knew that Erica Namba's disappearance was connected to the other missing girls, Mari Kono and Masami Yoshizawa. So they set up a special task force. And it sounds like from the coverage of this crime that they didn't really think originally that Mari and Masami were connected, that they thought that they were two separate incidents, which is surprising to me. Because they are two missing girls in the same age range, you know. But um, at this point, once you've got a third one, is when they put it together and they're like, okay, we need to investigate because this is clearly one person, yeah. you know. The following day, an employee at Naguri Youth Nature House found some of Erica's clothes in a wooded area. So hundreds of police officers were brought in to comb the area. And it wasn't long before Erica's body was found, with the nylon cord still binding her hands and feet. Her body was found about 90 minutes away from her home. Further searching by 500 police officers really didn't turn up any clues that could help them find a suspect. And over and over again, there's these girls that go missing, and there's no leads whatsoever. The two men who'd helped get his car out of the ditch came forward with a description, but they mistakenly said that the car was a Toyota Corolla instead of a Nissan. Come on, you guys. You had one job. That's it. That's all you got to do. You just got to remember the weirdo. I mean, like they remembered him, but Jesus, get the car right. Yeah. So what would happen after this is the police proceeded to pull over thousands of Corollas without them realizing they were searching for the wrong fucking car. That's a lot of man hours. That's exactly what I was going to say. You took the words out of my mouth. The amount of man hours spent on this, just looking for this Corolla is insane. And it was literally the only lead that they had, right? Yeah. I mean, there's no other evidence there's no other anything i mean these girls pretty much disappeared into thin air nobody knew anything so the one detail that needed to get right because it was the only one they had was wrong although they didn't have any other solid leads at least they knew that the murders were all connected so they knew if they found information about one it applied to all of them at this point, Sotomu became concerned that there were too many witnesses now and police might be closing in on him. So he actually laid low for a little while and he didn't abduct another girl for six months. Now all of a sudden he's concerned? Right. 
he had no regard before. Where did this come from? Who's this guy concerned to Soma? What character is this? <laughs> In the meantime, he became obsessed with reliving the crimes, consuming all of the media coverage and fueling the terror through those prank phone calls. So even though he wasn't stealing girls, he was still obviously indulging in everything other than abducting girls. He took this a step further when he sent Erica Namba's family a note pieced together from magazine clippings that read, quote, Erica, cold, cough, throat, rest, death. On February 6, 1989, Mari Kono's father, Shigeo Kono, found a box on his front doorstep that contained ashes, dirt, bone fragments, and 10 baby teeth. This is when I, as a parent, would just, you commit me. Yeah, I would just lose my mind completely. A box with teeth shows up. And like at this point, too, now you're like, okay. Two people, we've got the calls, and now we've got a letter. You know, it's like you start, okay, this is a person, you know, like, we'll, we'll get this guy. Yeah. You know, it's like, as a police officer, you're like horrified this is going on. Investigator, you're just disgusted. But it's like every time he does something, this gives us a little bit of hope, you know. Maybe we can get him this time. Maybe something. But we just got to get him to fuck up. That's the thing, is you're just, I know as a detective, you're sitting back, pouring through this evidence, like, okay, let me find, you know, what magazine did this come from? What paper is this? And they did that. I mean, they looked through everything. They, you know, found the box that the remains came in. They found that exact corrugated box and, you know, they matched it to, it was actually a photo paper, I think it was, something like that. So it had something to do with photography. They were really trying anything they could with these little pieces, but they knew it was only a matter of time before they found that one piece that matched to him. It's so Golden State Killer. Oh, man. They have everything but a name. It's exactly. Like, once we have this goddamn person's name. Yeah. Yeah. Inside the box with Mari's remains were also photos of a child's shorts, underwear, and sandals, and a single sheet of paper with five words pieced together again from magazine clippings. It read, quote, Mari Bones cremated, investigate, prove. Bizarre. Like with Erica, he's, you know, the state of her body, right? Pretty yes. much. It's preoccupied on the way that she died yeah. and her body. And then Mari, it's about finding her. Yeah. Which is interesting because they find later... It's only Mari. So it's funny to me that Mari is related. Anyway, sorry, continue. I just get, you know, I'm wrapped up. I'm wrapped up in it. <laughs> I'm learning this all new. I've never, so I'm like spinning on what could this be? What could this be? Right. Okay. You Bitch. wanted this. <laughs> this <laughs> is what you asked for. This is for. what you asked for. And it was like three hours in. The teeth, ash, and bone fragments were actually initially found to not match their daughter. However, they were later proven to match Mari. And I don't know how a fuck up of this magnitude happens. 
it's infuriating to me because it gave the parents hope that their daughter was still alive. And they actually did press conferences where they announced, oh, yes, we've got these remains. They don't match the missing girl. And it was a colossal fuck up. That's sad. Yeah. It's devastating. When the medical examiner was inspecting the remains, they determined that there were pieces of many parts of Mari's body in the box. However, there was nothing matching her hands or feet. Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders. From ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities, CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. A short time later... Satomu sent a three-page letter along with a Polaroid of Mari to the Kono home. And he sent a second copy to the most respected newspaper in Japan called Asahi Shimbun. Interesting. Yes. In the news, the, probably the rival paper. That's exactly. Like his yeah. dad ran a local one, but this was the biggest national most respected. And I looked it up and I was like, it really does say most respected newspaper in Japan. Or, you know, like it's not just New York Post or anything like that. This is the big time. So it was clearly a jab at his father. It's somebody who knows how to get a message out to a lot of people at one time. What do you do? You use the paper. Yes. Somebody who culture of reading the newspaper Mm -hmm. some people have never given a shit about the paper right but he knows yes how the press works he knows how to get media attention and that's what he's going after and he's additionally going after that media attention that's not involved with his dad because then this salacious story is not being broken by his father's paper the letter was titled crime confession It was signed with the name Yuko Emada, which has actually a double meaning of, quote, now I'll tell you, or now I have courage. The letter read, I put the cardboard box with Mari's remains in it in front of her home. I did everything from the start of the Mari incident to the finish. I saw the police press conference where they said the remains were not Mari's. On camera, her mother said the report gave her new hope that Mari might still be alive. I knew then that I had to write this confession so Mari's mother would not continue to hope in vain. I say again, the remains are Mari's. That's just 
otherworldly sick. He's so evil. And he thinks he's doing the right thing. He thinks he's doing them a favor by letting them know, oh, no, she's dead. She is dead, just so you know. You don't have to keep hoping. She's dead. I'm doing the right thing by telling you so you can have closure. He's very much, in my mind, a person that is making things up for other people. I don't necessarily think he believes he's doing the right thing, but I think he says things because he thinks he's supposed to or he thinks he can explain himself, but not because he believes them or feels them. Yeah, it's like, who are you doing this for? Because you're not doing this for me. Like, you're doing this for yourself. Yes. Again and again, that's why I point his quotes out because it really seems like they're said not from his own feelings, but for the sake of other people. So now that the Kano family had proof that their daughter was actually deceased, they proceeded with having a funeral and burying her. Her father, Shigio Kono, said at the funeral, quote, her hands and feet didn't seem to be with the remains. When she gets to heaven, she won't be able to walk or eat. Please return the rest of her remains. Oh my God, I just can't. I'm like affected. It breaks my heart, this family. And that's the thing about this guy is he's just going back and torturing them over and over again. They already lost their daughter, but he just keeps going back to deeply hurt them more and more. With the phone calls, the remains, the letter, he can't stop. These are also strangers. Like, he didn't know these people. No, he, completely he didn't know. random. Yeah, it's not like, you know, he knew him from church. It was this family that he kind of, you know, nothing. Not even like, sh- I mean, ships in the night, nothing. These are strangers from a town an hour and a half over. Yeah. Wow. That is that is like the ultimate nightmare. Somebody can just see you. you just, it, this could happen today. Just see you become obsessed. This is the thing now. Strangers. And she just disappeared. Forever. I mean, it's unbelievable. And then you just get a letter every 20 minutes from some dick face. Exactly. And exactly like that, when the Kono family returned home from the funeral, they found another letter from Yuko Amada that was titled Confession. This letter detailed how Mari's body had decomposed. Shut the fuck up. It's so sad. The letter said, quote, Before I knew it, the child's corpse had gone rigid. I wanted to cross her hands over her breast, but they wouldn't budge. Pretty soon, the body gets red spots all over it. Big red spots. Like the Hinomaru flag. Or like you'd covered her whole body with the red Hanko seals. After a while, the body is covered with stretch marks. It was so rigid before, but now it feels like it's full of water. And it smells. How it smells. Like nothing you've ever smelled in this whole wide world. I got nothing. And now you see why I said this is just one of the sickest individuals of talking about cases and different murders every single week. This is one of the most disturbing individuals I've ever come across. This is like top three. Yeah. This is, this is, wow. And it just 
tears me to pieces to think that her parents were had to read this. Shigeru's gotten like what three letters? <laughs> like create? I mean, just strangers. They nobody deserves anything. No, but it's not even like they were business partners and he did them wrong. And so he's like, I'm gonna fuck this guy over. I There's mean, no reason for total it. Total strangers. He just wants other people to suffer. Period. He wants to hurt people. And he he could just stop. He could just stop and just disappear and like he would get away with murder probably right like you know give yeah, him dna a couple years have right no leads. they got nothing but he just has to have this he has a compulsion yeah to keep fucking with them to keep hurting them part of his fetish is not just the act itself but also to deeply pain the people around the victims clearly otherwise like you said if he wanted to he could just pack up, move to another town and get away with it very easily. We yeah. know you could go one town over and have a whole other family sometimes, you know, because there's no lead. There's nothing. Yeah. They literally have nothing. So he's really just staying to hurt them. On June 1st, he saw girls playing outside in elementary school and convinced one of them to remove her panties while he took pictures while he was snapping photos, some locals noticed and they scared him away. They scared him away. Okay. There are three missing little girls like within not far radius. We are murdering the person that we see in the yard at elementary school convincing little girls to take their panties off. Yeah. How do you let this person get away? Honestly, I, I just right? I don't know how many people were there. But I mean, my first instinct would be to tackle him. I mean, something. It's just, it breaks my heart that they didn't, they weren't able to do that. I don't know what the circumstances are, but damn. I bet that they, I mean, I I don't know exactly how it works, but I would imagine they didn't put out the, it was, you know, the pictures, you know, were involved. Maybe they had. Maybe, maybe they just thought it was a local creep, a little, a pedo, like something. I know if I had heard on the news like, oh, there's this per- this is what's going on and there have been pictures found. I'm immediately like, OK, if I see anybody naked pictures of little girls around anywhere, and then especially if he's some strangers convinced the little girl to take her panties off at school. The fuck's going on here? Yeah, that's uh, the thing. We need to make a phone call. You have to assume that they didn't have that information. Exactly. It, I'm just it gonna, only makes sense. Exactly. Because otherwise, I you know, if you're like, this is the guy that murdered three girls He's getting tackled. But if you just think, oh, he's a creep, let's scare him off and protect the girl, focus on the one that he has right there, Yeah, it makes a little bit more sense. A lot of that is like culture of silence too. You know, there's like that freak, like, okay, whatever, you know, just, you know, he's a weirdo, stay away from him. And a lot of that shit just gets swept under the rug with this like silence, you know, oh, well, everybody's got skeletons in their closet. No, Mm -mm. now we're taking pictures of little girls in elementary school. Yeah. Get the fuck out of here. Yeah, I'm definitely of the mindset that if I saw that, even not knowing that there were the three girls involved, I mean, yeah, I'm tackling you no matter what. I'll take you're going down. Like, I'll take the court date for sure. Like, I'll absolutely pepper spray you, and then you can totally feel free to sue me after that. I'll go to court. (laughs) I'll go to court. I have no problem. But that don't bring up what I saw. Absolutely, and (laughs) you better believe I'm pretty good at defending myself. Like, we'll get there. Fuck this guy. Although in this incident, he almost got caught, he wasn't deterred from targeting another girl only a few days later. And like I said, he had already taken six months off 
And I think it had reached a boiling point to where even though he had almost just got caught, he had to take another girl. Like he just had to. He couldn't stop himself is what it seems like. I wonder if the trolling and the taking pictures and stuff was like he was trying to keep it under wraps, keep it cool. You know, no, like I definitely or just waiting it out a little while. But I don't think he has the reasoning. I don't think he's like well enough, to be honest, to be like, OK, I just need to keep it cool for a little while no. and I'll get away with it. I think he just was like forgot about it for a couple months. And then now, OK, here's my opportunity again. Maybe no little girl walked in front of him for six months. Well, I really think he was afraid of getting caught, you know, maybe. But then the compulsion became too much, just like an addiction where it was just like he needed a fix. And the little girl that he had been taking pictures of would have been his next victim had other people not stumbled upon it. You know what I mean? Oh, valid point. That's the thing. It's like it's not like he only took pictures of her because he was trying to like, yeah, oh, you're right. I'm I'm hungry. I'll just have a snack instead of dinner. That wasn't where he was coming from. That was a thwarted attempt. He was really going to take her. Yeah. And he usually started off by earning their trust, you know, in their local neighborhood and then saying later, hey, come with me, you know. So definitely it was just she was saved. I mean, she wouldn't have survived. No. Had people not found her. On June 6, 1989, Satomu spotted five-year-old Ayaku Namoto by herself. He picked up his camera and approached her to ask if she wanted to pose for pictures. He proceeded to take several photos of her until she seemed to get more comfortable. So he asked her to take some pictures in his car. When she got into the back seat, he tried to win her favor by offering her some gum. She took a stick of gum from him, but then made a comment about the deformity of his hands. Probably just like normal kid. Like he, I, I can see this happening. He handed her the stick of gum and his hands are weird looking. And she probably just was like, Ugh, or said something like, oh, those are strange, different looking hands. And he's just on another level. A little girl is telling me my hands are fucked up. Yeah, I don't even necessarily feel like it was anything awful. It was no. just that she had no filter because she's a child. She's fine. And she's like, oh, that's different. She's I'm just pointing it out. So, yeah. But to him, I mean, obviously, this is a source of a lot of trauma in his life. So he can't take any sort of comment, however, you know, mundane, like he can't take it with a grain of salt. So when she said something, he pulled out vinyl gloves to cover his hands. And he said, here's what happens to kids who say things like that. He then leaned over and strangled her. Satomu would later say she kicked and kicked, but went limp in four or five minutes. Instead of dumping Ayaku's body in the woods like he'd previously done, he decided to take her corpse home with him. Danger. He carried her inside, removed her clothes, and cleaned her body. Then Satomu proceeded to place her on a table with her legs apart and taped her vagina open so he could take pictures and video 
while he masturbated. Afterwards, he tied up her hands and feet with nylon rope and covered the body with a sheet. Over the next two days, he would repeatedly violate her corpse while he took photos and videos. Doesn't he live with his sister in a guest house? That's exactly what I'm thinking. Where the fuck is his sister? This whole time. I mean, I wanted to scream like minutes ago. Hey, wait. Hey, wait. He lives in a guest house with his fucking sister. What is going on? Because he also has the remains of one of his other victims. He's got hands and feet feet. in his home. How is that not smelling? Like, we know that you can't hide that smell. So I, I don't know where his sister is. They were living together and he hasn't moved. But maybe she moved out. That's the only thing I could think. I just don't know. But obviously, if she stumbled upon a child's body on a table, she would freak out. Well, yeah. So I've got to assume that she wasn't there. Otherwise, it makes no sense to me. She was the only one that was like, hey, you can't look at me in the shower. Right. So, yeah, this would be an issue. Once Ayako's body started to decompose and the smell became unbearable, Satomi dismembered her with a knife and a saw. He collected her blood and drank it before roasting her feet and hands over a fire in the backyard and then eating the flesh. That's that's a new, this is a big jump. This is new. This is getting... Ah, we are we're just not in this realm. I keep saying, you know, he's not in reality, but it's like it's it's bigger. It's more than that. I feel like that's a Courtney catchphrase. It is. Say, he's not with us. He's not like all They're not in the realm. They're not <laughs> that's on the level. Definitely a Courtney thing. <laughs> They're not on the level. But to me what this really is striking is like he's escalating over and over. And I think that he's the type of killer that never stops escalating through his entire story through his entire you know how what case right like how would you say it like every his crime that he does just changes slightly but gets worse you yes. know what i mean yes so it's like i see it from the very beginning he kills animals that are not near him that are just random animals then he kills the family dog then he takes pictures of strangers then he starts peeping on people close to him he eats his grandpa's ashes you know he takes these girls but then he takes the girls and then he keeps the body parts now he escalates to eating like every single time it gets just a little bit different and worse yeah you know it's how far can he push this that's the thing is he's just keep going up a level and i'm sure one thing makes like one disturbing thought builds onto another, builds onto another to where you're eventually roasting hands and feet and drinking blood. Well, yeah, he just must be like, oh, what can I do next time that's different? Yeah, exactly. Like, to, you know, if he's, you see this as like a high that someone is getting by doing this stuff. If you're evil and getting a high from murdering, what's your next big fix, you know? Yeah. Just chasing the dragon, basically. He distributed the dismembered pieces of her body in various places around Tokyo, like a wooded area, a cemetery, a public toilet, and her head was buried in the hills. 
After a couple of weeks, he became worried that the police might find some of the pieces that had been discarded kind of close to his house. And because of this, he worried that he would be implicated just by his proximity. So he went back to dig them up and he brought them home to hide in his closet. Later, he burned the pieces along with the sheets and other evidence. Then he buried the bones and ashes in the woods. Five days later, Ayako's torso was found at the cemetery. But detectives still had no leads. The only thing working in the police's favor was the fact that Satomu's kills were completely random and unplanned. And this meant that he wasn't organized or careful. So, like we discussed earlier, he was way more likely to make an error that would leave him vulnerable to being caught. Let's hope so. Exactly. On the 23rd of July in 1989, Satomu made that mistake that would lead to his capture. On that day, he noticed two sisters playing in a park by their house. And he tried to coax the younger one to get into his car to take pictures while he told the older sister, quote, stay there. And of course, the older sister immediately felt uncomfortable. So she ran home to get her father. The sister and father ran back to the park while her grandfather stayed home and called 911. They arrived at the park and found Satomu with the girl in the backseat of his Nissan, and both of them were naked. It's just your worst nightmare. Absolutely. Yeah. He was taking pictures of the six-year-old's genitals and attempting to use a zoom lens to photograph into her vagina. He just, he had no experience whatsoever. He was, it seems like he is fascinated and he just can't get enough. With the anatomy. He has no experience whatsoever with a real live human adult woman. So the only thing he could do is like find a way to control a child. Yeah. And I mean, with the girl that he, he keeps her at his house, she's just a body. He's just like, he, he just wants a physical cadaver. Yeah. That's really what what it is to explore almost. Yeah, kind of. It's like, you know, he just he has no experience and he's just so interested, but he knows he's probably not supposed to be. But like we always say, there's plenty of people all over the place that don't have experience with women that are teenagers, maybe a late bloomer that goes into college and is still a virgin that's not going to do anything like this, that's going to have a perfectly normal, healthy sexual relationship with a woman, you know? They're in this realm. <laughs> They're on like, the level. He's not. He's, he's not on quote, the level. With Courtney, he's, quote, not with us. He's not with us. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think that he's definitely got just this streak of evil that he's just had his entire life that, you know... From the very beginning, I said, I mean, he's just really fucked up and evil and he's one of the worst humans I've ever seen. And so for him, this is he's never I don't think he aspires to even have a, quote, normal sexual relationship. No, it doesn't seem like it at all. I think he just wants the anatomy. He wants the taboo of what's behind the black bar. And that's it. 
Yes. You know? So when they walked up and found the child with Satomu naked, the father, you know, immediately jumped in to her defense and he was able to pull his daughter away, but he couldn't apprehend Satomu on his own. So Satomu was able to escape and run away naked and on foot. When the police found out that he'd gotten away, they decided to hide and wait for him to return to get his car, which is perfect. And I can imagine Satomu kind of like weighing it out in his head. Like if he leaves the car because the father already saw the car, then they can like get the VIN number, they can match his plates, whatever it is, and trace it back to him. So he has to go back and get it. But if he goes back to get it, he risks being caught. So I'm sure there was a little bit of that in his head. Yeah. But I mean, he had to go get it. So Satomu came back to get his niece on and the officers were able to arrest him on the charge of forcing a minor to commit indecent acts. So even if they couldn't necessarily charge him with murder right away, at least they wanted to keep him in custody, right? So they decided just to charge him with what had happened that day. I'm sure they knew there was something bigger going on here. Of course. They're like, it's a matter of time. Yeah. We just need to make sure that he can't, you know, get out after like a 48-hour hold or something like that. We got to be able to keep him. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. They questioned him repeatedly over the next several days. He admitted to killing the four girls and eating some of their remains. It seemed very simple, easy interrogation. It really does. They also executed a search of his vehicle and home, which resulted in severely disturbing discoveries. First of all, Satomu had a collection of 5,763 videotapes which were mostly anime and horror. But within his collection, because they combed through it meticulously, they also found a lot of severely violent pornography, along with the child pornography we discussed earlier, and his homemade videos of himself violating the girls' corpses. He also kept a collection of still photographs of his victims, along with photographs of the clothing, the clothing themselves, 
you know, the things that he took from the girls. They also found the decomposing body parts that were kept in his closet. And they found his sister tied up in there with uh, something over her mouth. Because right. How in the Because where the fuck was she? Yeah. I mean, again, we Held have to assume somewhere. she must have moved out because this is over the course of a few years. Yeah. I think she maybe after the shower incident, I don't think I necessarily would want to stay there. Never. So it's highly likely that he now had the place to himself by the time the murders were happening. Seems like it. When the news of his arrest came out, his family was deeply ashamed of him. They went out of their way to publicly disown him. And despite the fact that they were extremely wealthy, his father refused to pay for his son's legal fees. His father said, quote, it wouldn't be fair to the victims. So the public defender's office had to search for attorneys that were willing to defend him. I'm on his dad's side on Me this too. One. I'm just like, okay, next, and I know that I would, course. you know, having a child be like on my child's side, no matter what, unconditional love is what I would think. But something this monstrous, there's no way for me to be sticking by you. So I think it's absolutely right that it doesn't matter how much money he has. He doesn't, you know, want to defend him. Yeah. Satomu's father was never able to recover from his son's arrest. And he was so ashamed that he ended up committing suicide in 1994 by jumping off a bridge. When Satomu found out that his father had passed, he didn't seem to feel sad about it at all. He even sent a letter to the media saying that the news of his father's passing made him feel, quote, refreshed. Okay. He has no connection to his family. None. That's the first sign of how psychopathic he is. His mother may have publicly disowned him, but secretly she visited him in jail and brought him comic books. Mm-mm. Yeah. Nope. He has done too much to your family. Like, take the murders out of this. He... He attacked and slammed my daughter's head into a wall. And then he attacked me when I was like, hey, you can't do that. And you know that was not the first. No. Not the first time. He's eating the grandfather's ashes. This could be my father. He ate my dad's ashes. This kid's got problems. And honestly, I'm probably part of the reason why this kid is a fucking monster that I've unleashed to society. Well, that's the thing is like, did she do it out of love for him or did she do it out of guilt? Guilt. Where she just knew she fucked it up. She let the sisters bully him. Her and the father weren't very loving to him. They could have done better. I think she just felt bad. She's yeah, like, I, I, I created this monster, you know? I don't doubt that she loves her son somewhere inside, right? Somehow. But, yeah. no. He passed his time in jail by reading or watching anime on a small TV in his cell. Oh, good. So his life didn't even have to change. That's great. Yeah, he did the same thing he would have been doing at home, which is just so frustrating. Because of his gigantic video collection, the media began calling him the otaku killer because otaku was basically this word for kind of a nerd obsessed with, you know, anime, cartoons, manga, stuff like that. That was the word in Japan. 
And of course, this title received a bit of backlash because, of course, nerd culture is not to blame here. And other people, like we always say, are into these sort of things like anime or manga and do not commit violent acts. We say that about everything. It's not video games. It's not, you know, being a virgin or whatever it is. Like there's plenty of people that do these things that watch anime and don't murder. So there was a lot of backlash because the media was really trying to portray him as like, you know, the cosplay murderer, basically. (laughs) People were really upset that the media was saying that anime and horror movies had really made him into a killer when clearly that wasn't true. Early on in his incarceration, authorities began testing him and having psychiatrists examine him. After several doctors interviewed him, they determined that he was considered sane, so he would be eligible for the death penalty. Legally sane. Legally, exactly. Not not sane in the court of public opinion. (laughs) In court's court of public opinion. That's the one. (laughs) In session. When the trial started, people were surprised that Satomu was extremely calm and seemed unfazed by the severity of what he had done. And of course, the danger of facing the death penalty. He was completely unbothered. Through the whole trial, he never said he was regretful for what he had done or expressed any remorse. It was just bodies. They were not people. They were cadavers. He really had no connection to human beings. No. He never apologized to the families. And to the contrary, he actually said that he felt like he had done a, quote, good job. Crazy. He's evil. He's just evil. Yeah. Despite the fact that he seemed sane and rational at the beginning, his defense team was trying to fight for a life sentence instead of the death penalty by claiming that he did not understand the difference between right and wrong. I think there's plenty of other things they could argue, but he knew right from wrong. Yeah, absolutely. As Court would say, he wasn't with us, but I don't think he didn't know that what he was doing was wrong. Well, there's certain things he did that tell us that he does know right from wrong. He wouldn't try and hide it if he didn't know that. Yeah, no. He wouldn't be worried and going back and forth and moving the and you know, all this stuff and being worried that the police are just going to guess it's him just because he lives nearby. Right. What? They were attempting to show that he was, in fact, not sane and therefore had diminished responsibility for the crimes. After a team of doctors, like I said previously, already found him sane... Satomu started exhibiting signs of mental illness. So clearly, this was something to me that he made up because he wasn't exhibiting any of these signs, had never brought up any of this. And then out of the blue, once the trial and the defense team was saying that we're going for some sort of insanity defense, this came out. Out of nowhere... He started frequently rambling incoherently or saying bizarre things. But again, this may have been a tactic to get sympathy or make people think that he wasn't legally sane. 
This sounds like somebody who is trying to sound crazy. He's doing what he believes a crazy, quote unquote, person does. He's definitely, definitely putting on an act. When he was questioned about the crimes, he suddenly began blaming a previously non-existent alter ego named Ratman, who he said lived inside him and forced him to do evil things. No, no, he didn't. He did. He claimed it. He said that Ratman could bring his grandfather back to life if he killed the girls. But again, to me, this doesn't explain the sexual component. It only explains the murders. If you need to murder someone to bring back, if that's the delusion that murder equals getting grandpa's life back, then where does the sexual gratification for you come in? That was purely selfish. That was your own motives. So your argument just doesn't make sense. No, and it sounds an awful lot like George Merman and Ratman may know each other (laughs) on some existential plane of crazy people claiming to be crazy. I mean, really, he just wants to make this up as an excuse, for sure. Sometimes in the middle of talking, he'd suddenly pause and yell that, quote, a rat man has appeared, and then he'd just completely be silent. It's like he read a book while he's in jail. He's been just sitting there. They've been talking to him about, hey, we're trying to keep you from dying, but... You know, this might help that. And then like somewhere in there, he just he read a book. That's all he does anyway, that this is an idea. Maybe somebody gave him legal books or something. But this sounds very. This sounds like a book. This sounds like an idea from literature of some sort. For a murderer that has only done crimes of opportunity, this specific act seems very premeditated. He really is like, the only way I'm going to get myself off is by creating this alter ego. And he immerses himself in all these sort of fantasy stories and comes up with this fantasy of Ratman. And he thinks that it's going to save his life, you know. But I guess it's it's desperation, you know. You know that you confessed. You know they have video of you literally interacting with these corpses there's no defense here. Yeah. The only so how way. are you going to get yourself off? Yeah. Because every piece of evidence is against you. The only way to survive is to make up a story. So of course you would. It only makes sense. He even drew pictures of Ratman in an attempt to show what the creature looked like and prove that its existence was real. But Again, I counter this with just how could it even have an appearance if you're claiming that it lived inside you? It's not a physical being because the whole time he's like, it's inside my head. There's Ratman. So none of the things that he's using to defend himself really hold up. Yeah. After the existence of Ratman was brought up at trial, Sutomu began having angry outbursts. He even flipped out and demanded that the police return all of his belongings, like his car and video collection. I'm sure they were just like, yeah, we'll get right on that. Yeah, for Whatever sure. you say. Oh, wait. Sorry, Satoma. We made a mistake. <laughs> Go have a joyride. Let's just unlock all this for you. Although Satomu was trying to keep the focus of the entire trial on his outbursts and the existence of Ratman, 
the biggest revelation in the court proceedings was actually about his family. It was revealed that Satomu was actually his sister's child, and worse than that, he was the product of incest. Satomu was a baby that resulted from his father molesting his sister. This information gives a different context to his entire life, and especially the issues with his family. Suddenly, his dad's suicide, his mom's just disconnection from him, the rejection by his sisters, his emotional disturbance, it just all makes sense. Even though this new information was tragic and clearly the source of trauma, it didn't necessarily prove anything either way about being found legally sane. Eventually, he was found to be mentally ill and have, quote, an extreme character disorder. But the doctors couldn't agree on whether it was schizophrenia or multiple personality disorder. I really don't know how any doctors could have gone for this, but it is what it is. What's interesting, too, is his argument that, like, for Grandpa to come back to life, I have to murder the girls is actually very OCD because a lot of the times, like, when you do the rituals or something, what it is is, like, you get it in your head that Grandma's house will burn down if I don't wash my hands. So, like, when you can figure out the root cause, what are you worried about that you keep doing this for? It's interesting because, like, the argument is very kind of like OCD argument. I don't know who gave him that idea. Yeah, I just don't know how... And it doesn't make sense because the sexual component of it too. It's just interesting Exactly. I don't know how it really would have held up because you could so easily poke holes in that argument. It didn't make sense for anything. Like you're saying, oh, it matches this type of disorder. And the doctors are saying it matches this. And then another doctor saying it's that. That's because it's not fucking real because he's just chosen this generic blanket mental health issue and just said, well, I'm going to act as, quote, crazy as possible. So it really doesn't fit into any category because it's not coming from a real place. Yeah. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Although they agreed that there were, of course, some mental health issues at play, he was still found legally sane. And the doctors agreed that he did know the difference between right and wrong. And that's the important distinction even no matter what else was going on in his mind and his heart at that point, he knew that killing these girls was the wrong thing to do and he did it anyway. Yes. Specifically, they determined that he had committed the crimes for his own sexual gratification, not because of Ratman or any other mental health issue. The trial lasted seven years which is completely mind-blowing to me. That's insane. It went on from 1990 to 1997. But on April 14th, 1997, he was sentenced to death by hanging. They attempted to appeal, but it was denied on June 28th, 2001. After the decision, Sutomu told the press, quote, This has to be wrong. I will be proved innocent someday. I don't intend to apologize to the bereaved families. He confessed to all four, the videos, the pictures, the witnesses. Okay. 
he's yeah, he's almost proud of what he did. He doesn't care. He doesn't feel any guilt. He just is evil to the core. Okay, Satoma, like this is where we're at. <laughs> so at this point, when he knew he was guilty, he was going to die. Uh, he decided that he didn't want to die by hanging. So he petitioned for lethal injection. But this request was denied. He was executed by hanging on June 17th, 2008. Good. It's really, really um, jarring to me that this was not that long ago. And it wasn't that he was executed by hanging. There's something about that that's very disturbing to me. But at the same time, if anyone is going to be hanged, it's this monster. This guy. I, this, like I said at the very beginning, is one of the most disturbing cases I have ever come across. This is pretty awful. Like, I I had no idea about this. And this just, it, the, the more, you, like, the further we get into this, it's just more awful. I'm going to definitely have to do some further, not light, but heavy reading. This is intense. It really is. And it's just so heavy. I just, yeah, getting through all of this information and, yeah, digging into why he was doing this. And it just, to me, this is the kind of case that's so disturbing because it doesn't make sense. You know, it's just like, yes, he was bullied. Yes, he liked anime. Like, there's all these things no connection to his family. You want to point to those as issues, but it's like that doesn't explain these murders because there's so many people that go through hardships and challenges that don't end up murdering people. So for him to be like, oh, well, I just, you know, I don't get the kind of porn that I like. So now I'm just going to go take little girls, you know, that's unbelievable. Like how many other people are living in Japan under the same pornography laws and would never do this? You know, I can't believe his thought process. It's just pure evil to me. Yeah, he wasn't going to stop either. No. Like, I mean, that one was June 1st. The next one was June 6th. And like, yeah, he was not going to stop. And there wasn't much time between. The only time he took a break was that six months. Yeah. We see so many other cases where they wait a couple years and, you know, it's like, okay, I needed to do this. It's like a craving or whatnot. And then they do this murder and then they can make it a period of time. But he could not. It was a matter of weeks and months and he had to take another girl. So it really, like I said before, the escalation, it would have gotten worse, more frequent if they didn't stop him. If they didn't catch him that day, I mean, he would just still be doing it. Unbelievable. I'm like stunned. I know. This is probably the most quiet I've ever seen you. No, for real, because it's just all washing over me and there's just so many things. I'm just, my brain is everywhere. I'm just like the mom actually, after all this too, after he comes out with this rat man bullshit, still wants to go, and then he, I have no sympathy for the family. I'm innocent. Fuck this shit, man. Are you kidding me? Yeah. Like, there's so much to unpack here. It's unbelievable. I mean, this case is just jarring. I mean, it's... And then the hands. I mean, just the hands. <laughs> just the hands alone. Go look at them. Look at this picture. 
I feel kind of mean focusing I do for on a his second. hands. But the fact that he was such a monster, it makes me feel like, ooh, your outsides match your insides. You're like grotesque inside. And so it came out in your physical being or something. Does that make sense? Yeah. It makes like a, like a horror movie thing. Like, oh, because of this is in your mind, then this came out in your body. Like it's a horror film. The other thing, like we always say, there are people that suffer with physical disabilities who, you know, people have one arm, people born with cerebral palsy, you know, they have difficulties. They are bullied for this incessantly as children and they grow up and they probably develop a thick skin, you know, and they continue on and they don't murder and rape and, you know, do horrible things. Yeah. There's so many people that get bullied for so many reasons and you would never do anything like this. There probably is an element to like cultural. It may be, I don't know, you know, your only son. It might be embarrassing for him to have physical disability. You know, there's probably a lot that goes into that. And, you know, he became that the way he is for a reason. His parents probably had a lot to do with it. He was completely unattached. There was a lot going on in the beginning that probably shaped a lot of the end. But you make decisions at a certain point. Yeah, and there's part of me that believes it had to be worse than we know. And he was 10th in his class at one point. (laughs) So it's like this guy's not stupid. No. I mean, it it really doesn't make sense. I, I just, we have so much information about his childhood and the severity of what he did later makes me think that, you know, there had to be some further abuse, not just bullying. It doesn't make sense. There's so many people that are, that are bullied in this world that, would never harm another person that would actually become, you know, more empathetic, more sensitive and really strive to help other people because they know what it's feel what it feels like to be put down. But for him to go so far in the violent direction makes me feel like, was he abused? Was there someone that molested him? Like what else was going on that we aren't aware of? Because it just doesn't seem like this could happen out of nowhere, you know? Yeah. But then there's this, like, part of me that, like, I know there's the nature versus nur- nurture kind of thing. But, like, was he born evil? I mean, what the fuck? I, I don't know. Yeah, it's it's possible here. There's, like, a lot of questions for me because this case is just so severe. Yeah. In so many ways. So... That's uh that's Satomu. That's Satomu for you. Shit. Yeah. I'm ready to dive into something else cuz Satomu has been taking over my life. Yeah, let's get out of this letter. <laughs> so, before we get out of here, let's thank the people that are new on our Patreon. So, we appreciate you being on our Patreon. If you want to join, the link is in the show notes. And thank you for those who signed up for this week, who are Julia, Igali, Hunter, and Rebecca. So much love for you. So much love, Rebecca. So much thanks for your Patreon patronage. (laughs) So, we appreciate you guys. If you aren't following us on social media, check out the links in our show notes. If you've got more reading you want to do for this case because you just can't get enough of Satomu, then check out those links. And what else? We got anything else going on? We're working on a Patreon for the holiday season coming up. It's wild. Very wild. Yeah. 
not Satomu Wild. No, but. not Satomu Wild. <laughs> but but that's the new bar that we're judging by, and it's pretty pretty gnarly. That is a great bar, <laughs> but nothing. Wow. So I think that's pretty much it for us. We're going to get out of here before Courtney completely melts into sure. the couch because I can see you fading. It's happening. <laughs> it's time for us to go. We hope that you guys have a wonderful week. We will see you next time. Thank you for listening. Thank you. And bye. Bye. We all have songs that remind us of our first love and bands that make us think of a certain friend. Maybe you have a workout playlist or a favorite album to listen to on road trips. But do you ever wonder what was going on in the lives of the artist when they wrote the music that you connect to your own memories? Rockumentary Podcast fills in the blanks on what you may not know about the iconic artists making the music that's so meaningful to our own lives. Each episode is an in-depth biography spanning from a musician's childhood through all the challenges of their journey to success and how they handled finally achieving fame. On Rockumentary, you'll hear about Kurt Cobain becoming a janitor at the same high school that he dropped out of, or how Jimi Hendrix was kidnapped and held for ransom for two days. Our episodes include details about Notorious B.I.G. marrying Faith Evans after knowing her for only a week and Phil Spector pulling a gun on the Ramones when they tried to end a long recording session. You may know the music, but on Rockumentary, you'll hear the stories behind the songs. Search for Rockumentary on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever else you like to listen to podcasts. It is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire. Huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, full work limited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.